campers, it's Lauren Marie Taylor, and you are listening to the Not the Final Girl podcast. Happy haunting, and thank you for listening to the Not the Final Girl podcast for spooky season. All righty, guys, this week Tony Hudson hangs with us to chat about her unbelievable career, beginning with where many of us in the business started in TV commercials, of course. She also talks about working with icons in the business, and of course, this being spooky October, landing the role of Sarah in Leatherface Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3. Tony and I had so much fun chatting it up that this is actually going to be a two-parter. So without further ado, let's go. Thank you, Tony Hudson, for gracing us with your presence on the Not the Final Girl podcast. I really appreciate you coming on the show on short, short notice, too. Oh, no worries. I'm glad to be a part of it. I'm, I'm on the East Coast, you're on the West Coast, and so many of our generation got our start in film and television by doing TV commercials. Is that true of your journey as well? Yes, actually. The very first TV commercial I was involved with, I was <clears throat> very young, about 15 and a half, and I was working at a racquetball facility in Canoga Park, California, married to a 30-year-old, and he was the manager of the place, and I was now an instructor. So they came through there looking for a racquetball court to film in for a Keith Carradine commercial for Japan. Huh? So they hired me to teach them how to play the hour before they were going to shoot. And then they saw me play and asked if I would be in it so they could shoot me from the, the neck down, not my face, as the expert, uh-huh. you know, in the commercial. And so I had a taste of this experience being in this this sweet frozen fish for Japan with the carotene. And I said, I think I want to do that, even though I was acting all through school. Oh, you were? And stuff. Oh, yes. No, I, I started as a four or five-year-old tap dancer. My grandmother had a dance studio. She was a teacher and taught little boys and girls how to tap in ballet. And then my mother was only child, like a Shirley Temple type tap dancing all over. So I grew up in that tap dancing uh, showbiz type environment, I mm-hmm. guess, but it was more for stage and theatrical. My mom was in the San Bernardino Civic Light Opera and did every musical on the planet. That was during the Billy Barty days, the Robert Goulet, mm-hmm. Michelle Lee era. Mm-hmm. They all came through there and did parts and stuff. So I grew up around that. But then you go to school and you have your normal life and five or four stepdads and, you know, the normal upbringing. Yeah. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, I, and I moved around a lot. Um, how it really happened before that commercial, and I was 15, I was actually like 14. And my, we were at the grocery store, and I asked my mom if I could get a teen magazine. And she said, okay, fine. So I got my teen magazine. And she's putting the groceries away at home, and I'm sitting at the kitchen table flipping through it. And I said, Mom, I want to be in this magazine. She's got her back to me, just ignoring me. And she says, well, call him up and tell him. And so I flipped to the back of the magazine looking for, like, the information and it was a little publishing house there on Sunset Boulevard in Hollywood. And I called them up and they said, send some photos. And I had just done these test photos for a photographer for a photography magazine for F-stops. It was like not glamorous, but these were photos I just had taken. I sent those in. Then a week later, they called me and I went down and they shot me for the Christmas issue. And then I was in it. Like it just boom. <laughs> so that was the first little taste. And then I did a commercial workshop. And then... They came through and I was available, all of that. So it kind of all blended in and I started doing commercials. I did over 50 
national television commercials mm-hmm. with every drink and every fast food and, yeah. you know, Coca-Cola with Bill Cosby yeah. and just lots of lots of stuff. Catching a football in a tab commercial, you know, just some fun things. But I just, yeah, I just really pursued it. And I came from that lineage, I guess. But I went for it, like, all the way and got agents. And then after the commercials, I went straight to film. TV kind of snuck in a little later. And Young Doctors in Love was my first film. And that was Gary Marshall's directorial debut. Oh, I did not know that. Yes, it was his very first uh, film. And I was originally hired for three days to be the play little candy striper. Mm-hmm. But they were writing every day and writing the script every day. It was like 70 principal speaking parts and a huge cast. And uh, the three days turned into 13 weeks. <sighs> and so Gary became like a surrogate father. Yeah. Thus, the five-step ones I had, none of them were the real ones. So <laughs> I was always open for an older man to <laughs> mentor me. <laughs> and, and Gary was that guy. Yeah, that's that's a wonderful experience. I want to ask you about Places in the Heart, because uh, okay. we have a friend, Jay Patterson, from New York, who was in Places in the Heart. And of course, it was with Academy Award winner and the Flying Nun from our childhood TV days, of course. Can you share any memorable moments from filming Places in the Heart with Sally Field? Oh, yes. Sally was so great. Uh, First of all, she taught me how to do needlepoint because she was an avid needlepoint. She would sit in her director's chair thing on the set in between takes and would have her needlepoint in her little script bag on the side. But while she would run lines, she would do needlepoint. It was like a a double distraction. But she could also easily be sitting there running her lines, knowing that she's got to get up at any moment when they're done with lighting. Yeah. And it, maybe it's the emotional scene where they bring her husband home dead and lay him on the dining room table, you know, oh, back then in oh. the 1920s, how they did it. And, you know, she's getting ready to go do that scene and she's interjecting conversation with people that are waiting. She's doing needlepoint and running lines and getting prepared all at one time. And so her professionalism and her ease of being able to slip in and out of being in front of the camera and then those waiting moments were amazing. Also, we're both Scorpios, so we really related. And she got a gift for her birthday. We were both on set during our birthdays in November uh-huh. in Texas. And she got a surprise gift of a puppy oh. from Burt Reynolds for oh. her birthday. It was a little cocker spaniel, a golden cocker spaniel. And her character in the movie was Edna. So that's the puppy got the name Edna. <laughs> and gosh, was, oh, well, when I got the movie, I had flown myself like the fourth callback to Texas with my own money. And I didn't know if I was going to get it or not. I was actually in tears the night before I spent all my money to fly there. And I, now I'm getting ready to fly home. And Robert Benton, the director, um, comes across the motel lobby and says, what are you doing here? And I said, well, I had to check out of my room. My flight's not before, so somebody's going to drive me later, but I had to be out of my room. So he goes, have you eaten lunch? He said, no. And then he looks at me and goes, well, pending, we can make a deal. The part is yours. <gasps> and so he goes, come with me. And he po- takes me with his little assistant, Sandra Lee, and walks me across the parking lot, which is like the Bates Motel. It's like no nothing happening. And um, walks me across the parking lot to the trailers where production offices are. And it's buzzing with fax machines when we had those yeah. and telephones and just the fluorescent lights, you know, because it was from the Bates Motel with nothing, dank, stinky. And then this bright lit, everything going on. And the whole cast is in there having lunch. 
And he starts introducing me to everybody. And then oh. Sally comes over to the table. Oh, my heart. And he introduces Sally to me. This is our Ermine Hightower. And, and then Sally looks at me and goes, did you just find out? And I'm like shaking my head. Yes. And she goes, oh, I just got chills. Welcome to the cast, she says. And, and then there I was, you know, knowing I was flying home, knowing that I was going to be part of this film. <clears throat> and we were the third storyline. So I was uh, the young harlot of the town who wanted to be a movie star and she was hooked up and married to the musician in town who was 20 years her senior that was played by Burt Remsen so this whole storyline we had a young boyfriend there was a fight at one of the dances and he punches me in the face misses the boyfriend I mean it's my, my character reveal was from the feet up panning on a big dolly shot across the whole yard with all the old cars and you know then it comes up to my face and in, in the mirror and oh, just this and it was all cut out <gasps> oh <laughs> that's why God. i was telling you all that there was three storylines there was lindsey krauss ed harris amy madigan they all having the affair right the two couples having the affair yeah. and then there's sally fields with her story with danny glover and john malkovich who end up staying with her because she her husband dies the sheriff and so on and so forth so there was this third storyline, but the movie was way too long. They had to cut something, and they basically whacked our whole story. So I look like a glorified extra, even though I still have my credit saying featuring. Yeah, yeah. Tony Hudson. Yeah, it's not like I'm, you know. But yeah, there was a whole third storyline. And in the Chicago Tribune, I think Robert Benton did a whole story and said, said I was really sad that we had to cut that because it was some of the best that we shot. So I was still very proud to be part of that film, but there's the whole story. All these years later, is there an uncut version anywhere? Or, you know, a lot of times people really dig up these deleted scenes and they post them on YouTube. Have you seen well, you any know, of that? Well, I had uh, requested from Robert, at one to Robert Benton, the director, uh, some footage okay. since it was all cut out. And he had sent me a letter ahead of time letting me know. It was quite nice, but... Because before the screening, I wasn't going to be shocked. Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> so I got a raw, real 35 millimeter film, but it's only my side. It's just my take of a wide shot, a master of the scene. And Burt Remsen has off camera lines that uh -huh. he's kind of yelling. And, you know, so it's not anything edited. or It's just one piece. So I do have a piece of my work. And, you know, they come in and they adjust the lights, they look at my makeup, I'm waiting to, for action, and, you know, it's all seen, and then you can't really hear Bert's lines off camera. And, but, yeah, it's a small portion of one of the scenes. I do have that. That must be really cool to have that raw footage, too. Yeah, it's in a whole reel. It's, like, huge. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we have to talk about just one of the guys, because you clearly have a knack for comedy. What drew you to the role and... Did you create your portrayal of Denise from your own school experiences? Okay, well, uh, I wasn't auditioning for that role of Denise. I was auditioning for the lead role that Joyce got. Oh. Most every girl that was in that movie, even Sherilyn Fenn, Deborah Goodridge, who are all, not Deborah Goodridge, Royce, pardon me, <laughs> that we all auditioned for the lead role. Okay. And then... Uh, then I got offered the best friend part and, um, yeah. And it was, it was just kind of like that. They just had to then come in and read for the other part and then got the other one. And I was fine and, and lucky to be a part, but I did hear it late years later and you'll relate to this being an actor. And my agents said no to the lead role in a smaller independent film that I had gotten, which I didn't know I'd got. 
and said yes to the supporting role in a Columbia picture instead. So late years later, I ran into the producer of this movie called 315, The Time, 315. And I remember because it was a weird title. And he says, yeah, we called to hire you. And they said, no, you were booked on this other thing. And, they, and I never even heard that I got it. When we were younger like that, they really did have a lot of control over us. They really did, yes. Yeah. I mean, I remember once getting yelled at by my manager at the time because I took a senior year trip when I was in high school. I took Because we started around the same time. I was, think I was 15 or 16 when I was starting out as well. And I took a trip to London as part of my senior trip. And she yelled at me. She said, you can't go. You're on hold for a commercial. And I said, but this is a once in a lifetime, you know, because I was young, once in a lifetime, who knew I'd be going back several times. But I said, I really want to go. This is my senior trip. And she said, well, if you book this, you have to come back. And I just looked at it. I, I said, if I book this, they'll have to give it to someone else because I'm not going to come back. And that was my first uh, taste of being assertive with her. And she did not like it one bit. <laughs> Isn't that funny? And sometimes they'll even change the dates if they really want somebody and they're flexible. And maybe right. there was a location that needed, you know, availability better or something. And it all works out anyway, you know. The yeah. Thing. yeah. Yeah. Agreed. I mean, that happened with the soap opera. I was getting married. And I was going to be on my honeymoon the week it, we were supposed to start shooting. So they just wrote in the, the very first script. They said, oh, where's Stacy? Oh, she's not back from school yet, blah, blah, blah. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. So going back to uh, to uh, just one of the guys, that film was so unusual for 1985 and the fact that it, it um, explores gender roles and stereotypes. And, of course, it was directed by a woman, Lisa Gottlieb. Yes. How did she approach these themes with the cast? Well, Lisa kind of saw herself in the choice. You know, it was kind of like a cathartic experience for her to be able to direct a story of someone feeling that they don't really fit in or, you know, hiding the fact that they're fitting in, you know, whatever it is. Yeah, no, I think I think she had a very cathartic experience choosing Joyce for that role. And they really bonded. They were very tight. And I think they're still very tight. Yeah, 1985, there were not a lot of female directors either. No, no, not at all. And she, you know, she, to her credit, she gave all of us a week rehearsal. So we all went out early. But yeah, it was a week rehearsal. It was a Columbia picture, but a smaller picture. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, a, it's really cool when they put you together like that. You know, when we did Friday the 13th, we all lived at the camp. So to get together as a cast, it helps develop all those relationships that come across yeah, it on looks screen. authentic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we're supposed to make it look authentic anyway, being an actor. Right. That's but true. A lot of times the other person's not hitting the ball back. But when you have experiences <laughs> and bonding, then it just naturally is there. So, yeah, it's a good idea. Yeah. And here's another one that I was able to find online, and it's called School Spirit, not School Spirits. <laughs> And this is where it comes into the horror section. It's a mix of very light horror because of the ghost with the special powers and comedy with with Rita. And wait, you can't you can't deny the tits and ass. Oh my god, well, I was going to get to that. Yes. Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> what did you think? And, I, and I was not included in the tits and ass part. <laughs> you were not, and I was I was I was so relieved in a way because I was like, oh, I don't know how I'm going to talk about this. Um, but what did you think when you got that script? Were you like, what the hell? And do I have to take I'm it like, off? <laughs> I'm like, how are they, how are they going to sell this shit? That's what I said. <laughs> 
<laughs> and uh, sorry, am I allowed to cuss? I yeah, you know. are. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, no, I, like I, yeah, I didn't know the ghost. Uh, it was stupid, <laughs> you know, that he comes back and it's always about a girl and it's all about sex and it's all about. So, yeah, and, you know, and then the uncle with the cigar, yeah. and, you know, his name is Pinky and, you know, hey, 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 like, you know. So, yeah, it was silly, but. I'm an actor. Just look at Michael Caine. Michael Caine says that. He says, you know what? I'm not always in an Academy Award winning movie, but I got to put bread on the table. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, because it had some early special effects, kind of like what you would see in It's a Wonderful Life, actually, um, and some supernatural stuff going on. Were there any outrageous gaps or anything like that during filming or scenes that really stand out for you besides the boob scenes that you're not in? Yeah, I know. Isn't that great? I guess, you know, just the camaraderie. I mean, we were a bunch of young kids, you know, yeah. so it was just, it was fun. It was really fun. I remember one of the French actresses hitting on me. There was a <laughs> oh. young French actress in it and yeah. she was very free with her soul and her energy. And that was one of my first experiences. I had like, you know, a female hit on me. So it was, I remember that being interesting. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. All right. I would be ostracized by my listeners if I did not bring up the year 1990, I believe it was released, Leatherface, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3. And, at, well, at this point in your career, you're firmly established in the industry, right? So how did you land the role of Sarah? Okay. Well, the role of Sarah. Okay. So I was living in Santa Monica, married to Dirk Benedict from the A-team. And we had one child already. He was probably two. So I was like ready to start working again. And um, I just went on one audition and it was with the casting person and it was in an office. And I'm supposed to play Sarah, who's out in the woods running for 10 days and starving and saw her kid sister get killed and eaten mm. by the family. So... You know, how do you do that in a square cubicle office, right? right? Yeah. And I'm like, I made a quick decision. I, I didn't think about it long because I didn't know I didn't know where I was going to be. So I didn't know how much space I had. But anyway, I went all the way across the office, which was not very far. But I went into the corner and I just slid down the corner like melting wicked witch into the fetal position and where he had to get up out of his desk to see me. Because a lot of times they'll sit at the desk and fiddle with their pen and scribble and eat yes, a chip yeah. and they're not really paying attention, right? Yeah. So I said, how can I create the energy to be on me? So I just sunk down into this little ball like a baby and started do- doing that scene where I said I had to eat a effing rat raw yeah. and I've been in the you know, that whole scene and just let, let it out. I just went crazy, but in that little ball. And um, then I got a call and I got the part. Oh, that's very cool because your portrayal is particularly harrowing. So that's why I was wondering how did you and Jeff Burr, the director, how did you guys prepare before it? And how did you approach the psychology of Sarah's trauma? You know what? He let me free with that. He did. He, he, yes. And I had, and I come from trauma, Lauren. So (laughs) (laughs) I, I, I come from trauma. And as an actor, that part of my toolbox is very full, meaning emotion. I, I, I'm emotionally available, I guess is what it is. Yeah. So to, to put myself in a victim 
vulnerable, scared, fearful situation, and we're shooting it out in the dark in the woods, um, was pretty easy. It was just, it was fun. It was, it was cathartic because, you know, a lot of times you take, you get there emotionally over something really silly in life. Mm -hmm. You know, you can, it can take you to some place that's a trauma trigger. And then you hear it's cathartic, therapeutic, getting to act it out and just let it out and, uh, you know, and be scared and scream and all of that and run and, and then wanting to save the other people and be the hero for a second. And for me, be acting is very cathartic. But it, it was just, he, Jeff just let me go, man. He, Jeff and I, I, I take him. I have a question from Tim, who is a big fan of the podcast. He lives in New Jersey. And he wants to know if there are any behind-the-scenes stories that you can share uh, while shooting the movie. Yes. Um, I didn't tell anybody during the audition or normal days of shooting that I was in my first trimester of my second pregnancy. Because <laughs> no. I didn't want to not get hired. Uh, right. She has to do running, yeah. you know, maybe we, maybe she can't do it because she's pregnant. We don't want her to, uh, whatever. So I just hit it. I didn't, I didn't show or anything, but I, I didn't say anything. So we are getting to the scene where I get chainsawed in half up against the tree by Leatherface. And I thought, you know, <laughs> Could be time. I should, I should probably say something yeah. just, just in case. So I say, Hey, Jeff, I just want to let you know. <laughs> case against to be hairy in any direction i said uh, you know i am pregnant ah. he looks at me i said i'm in my first trimester so i feel absolutely fine but i just wanted to let you know just in case <laughs> and we had to shoot that scene twice and not because i was pregnant um <laughs> but because of uh angles yeah. or you know how the caro syrup spray thing that was on the floor went up my nose and made me cough or something i don't know so we had to i had to clean it all off and then get dirty again and then let the blood go on me again so that was that was kind of the most and and i think it's on the director's cut on the laser disc the the commentary that that jeff talks about hearing about me being pregnant in that moment yeah because that's a pretty heavy duty role to be very early on in your pregnancy to portray you didn't feel like oh gosh maybe i shouldn't do this no, I'm, I'm a very athletic, yeah. you know, you know, I played professional racquetball for three, four years as a youngster. And I don't know, I just, um, I didn't hesitate at all, especially in the first trimester because right. it was my second one. So I kind of knew what to expect. You know, when I've been a guest on podcasts, I'm asked like, what are your favorite horror movies? And I'm going to tell you the truth. I'd never seen Leatherface until recently or any of the Chainsaw movies because I'm going to admit this live right here. I am quite squeamish when it comes to gore, but your film was different. And now I do have a few theories why, but why do you, what do you think sets Leatherface apart from the other slashers of that time? Well, I like you, I'm not a horror film fan. (laughs) It is not my genre of movies that I enjoy watching, even though I've been in a couple, two, three horror. So that being said, uh, the films are very well made. The characters are pretty extreme. The cannibalism yeah. and, you know, the message. <laughs> <laughs> Family is saw. It's just, it's just, you know, it's not my thing. It really isn't. 
Yeah. But I'm an actor, and I'm now it'd be different. And I said, "Hi, my name is Tony Hudson, and I think having a saw and eating people is the thing to do." What did you think about it that made it different for you? Well, for me, it really was. It was the unusual characters and the family dynamic. The acting of everyone, I thought, was wonderful. It was, like you said, it was just a very well-made movie. And a lot of times you, you don't walk away and say that. I actually watched it a few times, and I never do that, not even with my own movies. Because I think most of us look and go, ah, I want to see myself. But it was just a very well-made movie, and the characters were very drawn out, you know? Yeah, I, I, I believe so. And Viggo Mortensen is oh, just amazing yes. in it. Yeah, I was and- floored when I saw him. And R.A. is Leatherface, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, you can't go wrong with that. And Katie Hodge. And, okay. Oh, and then Ken Foray, the guy that, that acted in scenes in the, in the forest with. He's really good. I mean, yeah, just a really good. And Jeff is so talented as a director. So my husband at the time, Dirk Benedict, mm-hmm. walked out of the screening of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. <laughs> at what point? At your death scene? Uh, probably when they were at the kitchen table trying to, you know, eat somebody or cook them or something. He said, I'm out. Well, speaking of the A-team, I have another uh, listener, Tom in Maryland, and he wants to know what it was like to be on the A-team. Well, you know, it was, it was kind of family because obviously Dirk playing face man. And then everybody that's on the set is family. And, you know, Stephen J. Cannell, who, who was his show, he wrote it and produced it. And so I, I did audition. They did have me come in and read, oh, they did. you know, okay. to make, yes, even though, you know, they, they know me, but I guess they wanted to make sure I matched up with folks and stuff. It was really cool. I mean, they treated me very nicely. And it's funny, I, I wasn't pregnant and then played pregnant in that show. <laughs> <laughs> I had to put on a little pregnant tummy. Um, yeah, no, it was really fun. It was I was very welcomed and uh, it made it very easy. And, and Mr. T and I were yeah. buds. We got along really well. Yeah. Did you did you, you know. get to see him say I pity the fool in person? Oh gosh, yes. <laughs> Are you kidding? We we all went. Through, oh my gosh, I had such an experience with the whole A team. So in Germany, uh, they were just freaky over the A team show when it first the, when it was out. It was just enormously successful. So during one of the hiatuses, the whole A-team and spouses uh, went over there for just a promotional tour. Uh It's not like they were going to perform any songs as a band. They weren't (laughs) going to read poetry. They weren't going to do it. They're just going to show up, like go to a a car racing place, get in cars, drive around the track and just let the fans go high and wave. And that's it. Then go get in a Sikorsky helicopter and fly over to another town where there's 10,000 people gathered on the ground and you go and they get out and they just wave and sign and then get in the helicopter and go to another, like, this is what we did. We spent a lot of time together over there. And the front of the newspaper over there said there hadn't been that many people at the airport that showed up since the Beatles showed up in 1964. That's wild. It was, it was so scary when we got separated from our spouses going from the airplane to the terminal. So then after that, we all had to get wristbands, yeah. so the spouses, so they knew that we were part of it because we kept <laughs> going to different places. But it was quite insane the, the, how popular the A-Team was for like a four-year period. It yeah. was just insane. And Mr. T's great. I mean, do you know what T stands for? No. Most people don't know a piece of trivia. Uh, his real name is Thoreau. Oh, how poetic. Yeah. That, which is why he goes with T. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Thoreau. But, uh, 
Exactly. It doesn't really have the same punch. Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't project his image. No. But we got along really well. We spoke and, and you know what? I didn't kiss his ass and when he was yeah. the Mr. T that when he was that, everybody wanted a piece of his time. And you could tell, you know, ah. Uh, Oh, that—that's that's some BS right there. As they walk away from doing an interview, you know, yeah. he'll say that under his breath, you know. But yeah. he—one of his famous things to do on set, little behind the scenes for your fan there, is uh, Mr. T was very vocal, <laughs> uh, even just when the, just the cast and the crew, you know, not when there was press or somebody. But he would always announce when he had to go poo poo, <laughs> and 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 it, and uh, yeah, he would say, "I I got to go." I got to go poo poo, and he would get up and you know do a whole say it the whole way there. Oh my god! <laughs> Look out! <laughs> yeah, he was he was very grandiose with his presentation. He knew he was playing a character. He was a very sweetheart. He was a good guy. Still is a good guy. A big thank you to Tony Hudson for joining me this week on the Not The Final Girl podcast. Next time, Tony and I will talk about more of her TV experiences, roles that got away, and some interesting facts that you may be surprised to know about her. You can connect with Tony on Instagram. She's at Tony Hudson 9 on Facebook and on X, formerly known as Twitter. She's Tony Hudson. And head on over to her website. It's just TonyHudson.com for some news and lots of other fun stuff is there. A big welcome and thank you to my newest Patreon, Rusty from Georgia, who joined as a screamer. So appropriate for the season. And also Anthony in Maryland and James in Rhode Island, of course. Shout outs also to my slashers, Tom in Maryland, Nick in Texas, Aaron in Vermont, Chris in Texas, Tim in New Jersey. And of course, in Pennsylvania, we have Anne, who is a happy camper. So thank you all for supporting the show. And as you know, I really appreciate you all as well as everybody out there listening. Thank you so much. You can check me out on Instagram. It's just Laura Marie Taylor one. That's the number one behind my name. And of course, my website is just my name, just like Tony Hudson, just my name, LauraMarieTaylor.com. I will see everybody this coming Friday the 13th weekend. I still can't say that. Friday the 13th weekend at the Haunted Majestic down in West Virginia. The link is on my website. If you happen to be in that area, drop on by. I'll be there from... um 7 p.m. until 11 p.m., both both Friday and Saturday. And I'll be dragging from New York, Ron Milky, Officer Dorf from Part 1. So hope to see you there. And don't forget, keep your doors locked and stay out of the woods.